and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. First-time listeners, welcome to the show. So glad you found us. Regular listeners, as always, welcome back. Uh, I have an excellent discussion lined up for you today. Uh, just a little, just a little programming note. This conversation was recorded uh, about two weeks ago now, almost. Um, and the only reason for the delay was I had an unforeseen emergency to deal with that uh, kind of took me out of commission for about a week or so. So uh, I do apologize, but it's it's still fairly current, and I think you'll enjoy it as uh, my guest and I discuss the Mueller report and Trump and uh, Jussie Smollett and a whole lot of other issues. Um, this conversation really kind of does go all over the place, and I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, as, as always, I just want to remind listeners that um, Counterpunch is really quite an important project for us in these times that we're living through. I feel that uh, even just in the last 12 months, the media landscape on the uh, alternative media on the left has gotten even more insular, even more incestuous, and even more, um, well, lacking in variety, I guess we could say. Um, and Counterpunch is, I think, a breath of fresh air in so many ways because it's really unlike any other outlet or any other media platform. You'll get all kinds of topics covered from a variety of perspectives. Um, I've written about everything from African geopolitical questions to opening day of the baseball season. So uh, you'll get a quite, quite a selection of things. So pick up the phone, Call the Counterpunch office, make a donation, or of course you can get a subscription to the print magazine. That's a great way to support Counterpunch and also get something out of it. So I really do encourage people to become subscribers. I'm, you know, I'm on the Counterpunch team and I'm also a subscriber and have been for quite a while. So anyway, please do consider that. And now enjoy my conversation with J.P. Satilli. So let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to talk to J.P. Satilli. I Let me tell you this. J.P. is the news vandal. You should be signed up for his newsletter. It is some of the best curated content you're ever going to find anywhere. I don't know how he does it. I don't... Uh, some kind of black magic and witchcraft that he performs in order to be able to find all of these great stories. So if you're not signed up for the News Vandal, uh, for the daily uh, rundown, please do that. News Vandal, is it newsvandal.com, JP? Yeah, newsvandal.com. Yeah. And you. if you go there, it just pops, a little box pops up and you can sign up. Hey, and guess what? You can also support JP on Patreon. I really recommend that as well. Um, his analysis truly is some of the best and I'm really happy to have him here today to talk about what's gone on in the last few days. I mean, we're, we're recording here about a week after the bomb drop, that is the Mueller bomb, the Mueller report, the long-awaited uh, inquisition to begin against Trump, right? The magical deus ex machina <laughs> that swoops down from the heavens and saves us all from the calamity. Uh, but none of that has happened. And in fact, very little has happened, and uh, I think that in and of itself is kind of an interesting story because we all were waiting on this Mueller report, but there was a lot of speculation about not only what would be in the report, but what the outcome would do for Trump and would do for the Democrats, or maybe not do. And I just kind of want to start out by asking you, just looking at the last seven days or so since the Mueller report dropped, what are some of the things that you find most striking? Well, one is the 
polling data that's starting to come in. We had a CBS poll, a morning consult, Politico poll, a CNN poll. These are not my gold standard polls. I'm, I mean, for me, the triumvirate is the Gallup tracking poll on, on presidential uh, approval rating. Uh, anything that Quinnipiac does because they have a really great methodology and they ask a lot of deep questions. And then Pew. And so we haven't seen those data points yet. But I'm amazed that the morning consult political poll showed no jump in his approval ratings. It was static at 42. I'm surprised that 77 percent of uh, of Republicans uh, don't think that the Trump that the that the um, uh, think that the report should be released and that they you know that they don't think it fully exonerates them. All of these really interesting data points that were shocking to me because I thought he was going to get a bump. I mean, I thought it was going to be he was going to get to 45 percent. And, you know, for him to get to 45 percent really is a lock if he can maintain that in to, to win in 2020 because he doesn't have to get to 50 percent to win. He just has to get those red states and, and meet that that formula for the, the electoral college. So that's interesting. The other interesting thing, and we can dig deep onto that and why that might be and, and whatnot. The other interesting thing to me is the battle over the memo. And what does what does the memo really say? Which it doesn't really say that much. It's only four pages, and we learned today from the New York Times. So we're recording this heading into the weekend, and Trump has had his uh, his rally in Michigan. But then the New York Times reported that the Mueller report is upwards of 300 pages. So there's obviously a lot in there. And Judge Napolitano, one of the right's sort of favorite sort of, you know analyst arbiters of all things judicial and legal said uh, on Fox News that the only reason for it to be covered up or to be hidden from from public view, heavily redacted, is because there's something in there. And so the thing that I find fascinating is not necessarily the battle between the Trump loyalists and the the Democrats, the pro pro and anti on on Trump. I'm fascinated by what's going on inside the left, as it's loosely called. I don't even think that's – I don't even know why we say that. I say – sort of progressive democratic community. And you have the people who have been criticizing Russiagate, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world, and the people who have been promoting it like like it's a mantra that was given to them by a guru like Rachel Maddow. And both of them show their excesses in their analyses. I just love that the great Jeffrey St. Clair of Counterpunch, you're very familiar, when Glenn Greenwald said, I'm going on Fox tonight to talk about the Mueller report, Jeffrey said, just tweeted at him, so you've read it? And and that's kind of where we are, Eric. So you've read it? No, nobody's read it. We still don't know. And the fact that Barr said what he said was great for Trump, a huge victory. There's no doubt about it. Cements many things for him. But it actually just left as many questions as it answered, and it answered very few. I guess my question to follow that up then is, does that really matter, at least from a political perspective? I don't think that for Trump it matters at all, because all Trump needed was the vindication of a two-word slogan, no collusion. No collusion, no collusion, no collusion. He's been saying that for a couple of years now, and we finally get a Mueller report, and whatever you think about what may or may not be in there and what may or may not be in Barr's memo— all that most of America is hearing it distilled down to two words, no collusion. And it shows you the brilliance of the branding, right? To, to set it up in such a way that he was almost assured a victory because 
that was going to be the hardest thing to find, the connective tissue between him and some smoking gun connect to uh, memo or or email or phone conversation that's been tapped by the NSA that says says Donald, we are going to win you the election and you are going to do this for us in in Syria, for example. The the chances of that being found very very slim, right? It was if there's going to be something, it's going to be at a most likely a different level, like Manafort who didn't flip, which I'd love to talk about, but. Here's the the weird thing about it. It it hasn't given him the bump yet, and we'll get some more data over the course probably the next over the weekend. There'll be another set of polls that'll be that'll be released. If he doesn't get that bump there, then what does it mean to continue to cover up? Because I think that it actually then may become a problem for him if the GOP Rand Paul actually worked to block the re, a resolution to work to block a resolution calling for it to be released. I saw Mitch McConnell yesterday bring up the national security argument why we want to protect sources and methods. That's why it shouldn't come out. There is every reason in the world you would think for the GOP not to want it to come out, even though Trump says he wants it to come out. He probably knew said that knowing full well that the functionaries in Congress are going to do everything they can to keep it from coming out. And he also has a functionary at DOJ who is going to keep it from coming out so he can have it both ways that way. I actually think that politically, if it doesn't get released or if it gets released as a mega summary, which is one of the reports I heard that Barr is thinking about releasing it as a as an extended summary in an extended summary style format, or if it comes out in just p- bits and pieces with heavy redactions, leaving all kinds of, of gaping holes and, and big questions, then I think it actually may work against him. Because then it looks like you're covering up, right? It's not the crime that gets you. It's the cover-up. And and then you can start running on – if you had to, you could start running on a culture of corruption that covers up crimes, particularly for people like Don Jr. and Jared Kushner. Well, that then raises the second part of all of this, and that is the the role of the Democrats here. Because I know what you're talking about in a 2020 campaign scenario, yes. but yeah. we got to this point, I think, because of any number of really dire strategic mistakes, I think, made <laughs> by the Democrats. And sure. one in particular being this whole obsession with collusion, because as you said, collusion was always going to be by far the hardest thing to prove. And I don't even know what collusion even means, because I it's know. not really a legal term. Conspiracy. Nope. I mean, if you're looking for conspiracy, I think presumably they found it. If they didn't find it, then they would have released the report. So the point is, it seems to me the Democrats boxed them, box themselves in on the collusion angle, and now I feel like they don't have that currency anymore. Well, and that's this is the double-edged sword. So I think one side, on one side, you have the the sort of the, the Trump Republican side would love maybe their and maybe this is their calculation on the cover-up uh, or uh, not on the cover-up. I don't want to say it that way on restricting the release of the report. To try and goad Democrats into continuing this drumbeat on a dead horse, just going to keep going at the dead horse, keep going at the dead horse, because we saw the other interesting thing this week, immediately after a, what should have been a week long, the beginning of a week long victory lap, right, getting the the um, 
Barr memo, what is the first thing that the Trump administration does? Let's bring up pre-existing conditions. Let's go for that one again. Oh, by the way, let's become the party of anti-Special Olympics. That's it. Let's be anti-Special Olympics. So stepped all over the victory. And that's good for Democrats, right? Maybe talking about the Mueller report is bad for Democrats. But then again, these early polling reports indicate to me that it may actually be something like a Democrat's version of Benghazi, where they can, can they're just, what maybe they're just going to replay the Benghazi playbook, Eric. Now, one could say it, it didn't work, but then again, I would say it at least contributed to what became a massively successful campaign in a target-rich environment of Hillary Clinton to demoralize her voters and to create doubt about her. So, are the, I mean, it's, I think we just, it's a jumbled mess. There are a number of different possible stratagems that could be employed. There could be the way, you know, let's get them to continue to talk about the Mueller report so they don't talk about all of our other crimes. That's been my major criticism of outlets like MSNBC. Every hour on the hour, we're going to do a full hour of discussion with Frank Figluzzi and Joyce Eileen and, and a whole cast of characters of people who used to serve in in uh, the FBI and in the Justice Department and in the and in the intelligence services, and we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna parse we're gonna dance we're gonna find out how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin because somebody told somebody at the New York Times that that the Mueller investigators are looking into Deutsche Bank. Oh, somebody says they're looking into Deutsche Bank. Well, let's spend five days figuring out what they could be looking at in Deutsche Bank when it's an anonymous source. Leading, giving a just sort of a weird little breadcrumb to nowhere, to, and they're just going to hang. They could have been doing every anything. They could have been doing any anything else. They could have been doing what the Department of Interior, the EPA, the, the HUD, uh, the fact that Goldman Sachs took over the the uh, U.S. U.S. economic policy and gave away this tax. There are so many. How about killing children? Donald Trump's administration opened up the rules of engagement. Record number of children killed in Afghanistan by U.S. bombing last year. Did MSNBC cover it? No. So there's that argument too, right? Why not cover that stuff? But then again, then again, if the if the base, the Democratic base has now become somewhat similar to the Republican base, and so they're insofar as they're looking for that red meat that activates them. Maybe if the the polling data is not showing a, a bump for Trump, maybe that's the green light to go ahead and continue to hammer it. I don't really have a good answer for you either way. I have this funny image in my mind of, you know, a child, this very cliched sort of image of this child going to his grandma and saying, you know, grandma, I, I want to play. And grandma says, uh, sorry, Sonny, uh, grandma's watching her stories. <laughs> grandma's watching her stories now. And and the reason I say that is because I feel like that's what all of this really has come down to, because MSNBC and CNN in particular have kind of become this sort of soap opera kind of outlets yes. that, that yes. and I mean that in a very real way. I, I don't mean that as a sort of a caricature of what they're doing. I, I was just looking at some numbers. I actually didn't know this, but for I, I knew that the median age for viewers of Fox was 65 or somewhere right. or somewhere north of 65. I did not know that the median age for MSNBC and CNN is like 62. 
Yeah. So so yep. it's essentially it's essentially baby boomers who are watching yes. cable news and yes. they're the ones who are lapping this stuff up. And I wonder what that actually means for the politics of 2020, because baby boomers are obviously still an important contingent, senior citizens, you know, as they've all kind of at this point, I don't know about all, but many are now senior citizens, etc. Always an important demographic in any election. But I don't. But but the millennials and the Gen Xers, the younger people, the middle-aged people are watching a hell of a lot less cable news these days than they were, say, five, seven, ten years ago. And so I wonder whether the utility of all of these stories has kind of worn out. I think that's a great observation. I mean, we need to put this all in context. I would say right now, based on recent numbers over the last you know five or six months, the average daily viewership, engaged viewership for all three of those networks combined is around about, what, five, five and a half million people in a country of 328 million? Five and a half million. Five and a half million. And before Donald Trump, this is these are these stats blew me, will blow anybody's well, mind. Sorry, I wait, think. wait, wait. Five and a half million if you combined all three? Yeah. Yeah. No you're looking way. At, no yes, no, way. Yes, is that low? Yes, you're looking at about two to two, you know, about two for for uh, Fox, about two for MSNBC. They compete back and forth. They've been competing back and forth. And they, Rachel Maddow had it where she was getting about 2.1 million vote viewers. Then um, for CNN, you're looking at about a million. Get this, Eric, before the 2015, the beginning, the, it's really the, the 20. You know, 16 campaign, but the 2015 campaign machine started to go. the The average daily viewership for for CNN 434,000 people. 434,000. MSNBC was at like 383, and Fox was at 1.1. That's I. That blows me away. I would not have thought that the numbers were that low in 2015. I would not have thought that the numbers were as low as you said in 2019. Yes, it is a small. So it is. <laughs> this is why when Donald Trump came along, the soap opera began and why they got addicted to it. This is where I part ways with somebody like a Glenn Greenwald talking about a conspiracy to brainwash everybody to be against Russia. Right. And that's what. The Democrats and the MSNBC had been conspiring to do. No, you want what MSNBC has been conspiring to do? Make money. And, and how do you make money? You get people on a daily heroin drip story like a soap opera, which Donald Trump has provided for them. That's, that's how Donald Trump was able to garner upwards of $6 billion worth of free media on his way to election. Every rally he held, he knew that the media was going to cover it. Because why? Because he was going to say something outrageous. Because why? Because he learned how to do politics from being involved in world wrestling entertainment. And that's how you do it. The Washington Times had a great write-up on this uh, right after he was elected about how, how the, the McMahons were consulting with him and how he, he praised them for helping teach him how to do politics. This is – so this – this is, I think, what the Russiagate story and the monotony of it really was driven by on the part of MSNBC, particularly as Rachel Maddow finally supplanted 
Hannity to get to that coveted, you know, two, two point one, two point two million viewers. I think she even hit a two point five at one point at one of those sort of those peak moments when there were all of these leaks coming out. And maybe when the anonymous letter was written about, you know, we're protecting the democracy from inside the, the, the White House. But we're not talking about a huge viewership here. <laughs> and the oddity is, is maybe that the way everybody who crowds around media and politics on social media handles it is to distort the actual impact of it. And maybe that accounts for why there hasn't been the Trump bump, because even though all of us who are in this in and around this bubble teaming on it, and I include myself, I used to be inside the bubble when I worked in the media inside DC. And now I spend a lot of time commenting on it. I'm always negative about it because I think it's it's horrendous. And and I think it's strangely narcissistic. But but maybe we are we are overestimating the impact that the Russiagate monotony and drumbeat has had out there in the world, where still, in spite of the greatest economy in the history of mankind, people are struggling to make ends meet, and they are so busy going about their day trying to trying to make ends meet and pay for prescription drugs and do all the things that they're trying to do, get their kids through school. Uh, have, their kids are probably living with them after going to school because their kids have all this debt. So they, they're they not paying attention to this stuff like all of us are, which maybe is why when the bomb dropped, it didn't have the impact that people thought it was going to have. Yeah, the Mueller report, not with a bang, but a whimper, no doubt. Um, I think that an interesting aspect of this is to consider how this plays in the 2020 Democratic field, because yeah. I haven't really seen all that much translation in into the campaign. And now, granted, the campaign is still very, very early, and who knows where this is all going to lead. It will undoubtedly be a long and winding road to uh, not pay royalties to the Beatles, to use their phrase. And uh, I think that the question is... Is this even an election issue? I don't see a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren or even a, a, a Kamala Harris being no. able to do all that much with Russiagate. So I guess my question to you is where does the, let's call it the liberal media establishment, where do they go leading into 2020? I mean, do they continue dealing the heroin or are they moving on to, you know, the 2020 uh, ecstasy rave? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I already saw the headline today. I think it was Lloyd Grove at the Daily Beast or something had the story on after, you know, um, because there's a ratings drop, particularly at MSNBC after Sunday, MSNBC now turning to 2020 coverage. In other words, well, now that we've we've maybe lost this narrative thread that we can run every day like a soap opera, as you so uh, aptly put it, now we're going to go to the horse race. And they're really already beginning the horse race. I mean, the coverage for Beto O'Rourke, I get up at 4 a.m. here on the West Coast. So that day that Beto, you know, you know, helicoptered into Iowa to make his big splash. It was Beto Palooza, to, and I guess we would have to take some Molly for that at this ecstasy rave. But they're they're geared up for it, and why wouldn't they? It's actually a seamless transition. So I think the media will happily go and go towards that. Although I also see some spine stiffening and recalcitrance, kind of like, wait a minute here, 
we're not going to let you take this, take the narrative from us about our failure as a media establishment, which is one of the immediate uh, narrative frames that came up inside the progressive movement among the progressive critics of the DNC and the, and, uh, the Russiagate story and also of the, you know, their opponents on the other side. So I think they want to battle that back and I can understand why they would want to do that. So maybe you don't want to let it go. I think in terms of politics, I think the Russia Gate story will have some effect at the congressional level in key congressional races where you have, you know, um, toss up districts and where be where animating Trump voters and demoralizing Trump voters and animating Democratic base voters and demoralizing them. I think it can be weaponized on a, on a, in a few races around the country that could be very useful and maybe in a couple states where where you have some of these red state senators who are coming up and you know being a staunch defender of Trump could work in your favor or work against you so on the presidential level I see I see almost no op- applicability at this point I mean I don't know I think that's probably where you wouldn't when you agree with that I mean I, think yeah, I don't see any way. I don't see any way that uh, Russia Gate makes its way into 2020 in no. any. In, in, well, no. I let me let me rephrase that. I don't think it makes its way into the 2020 campaign because Democrats want it to. I can see a scenario in which Trump brings it into the campaign. Sure. In which sure. Trump says these, these they're all liars. It's all fake news. I've been saying fake news. They've all been saying that I'm some kind of lunatic for calling everything fake news. 2 years of this fake news, no collusion. You're all liars. Okay, so Eric, so that if you're faced with that and uh, and you're you have a let's do you have candidate X. All right, let's not say who who the candidate's going to be now, but candidate X. How do you battle that? Because what if you have a a release by Barr that is woefully inadequate in terms of transparency, has all kinds of redactions, has is is instead of 300 pages, you're seeing 70 pages, and who knows what's in the rest? Why wouldn't you counter then with with a with the cover up is protecting you, and when I become president, we'll you know. We'll get to the bottom of that, or at least how about this? You would, you might say to your your candidate, don't say you're going to take vengeance if you win. Say we just need to get you out of there because because we can't have these kind of cover-ups anymore. Because you've got to feed your base as well. So I, the weird thing about where we are politically, is that I think the process that we've seen inside the Republican Party for many many years that culminated in the Tea Party, where you had a hardcore conservative activist cadre that slowly over time took over, began with the evangelicals running people for school board seats at the end of the 80s when the Christian coalition, Pat Robertson, and then uh, Wonder Boy over there, he's the the, the baby-faced assassin, Ralph Reed, they decided to to effect a sort of a a systematic change, multi-generational systematic change over time. That culminated, I think, in the Tea Party. And so now I think we're seeing a tea, I think there's a Tea Party on the left, or at least inside the Democrats. I, I think you see the impact of uh, AOC and, and people like that inside the party on, on invigorating the party and also invigorating a key constituency for the party, which is going to be millennials who are transitioning out of the sort of the diffident going to college, late teen or, you know, early twenties, going to college stage 
heading into their 30s and starting to actually get to that that part of the of life where you start voting more and maybe you want to appeal appeal to them and maybe you want to appeal to them with the same kind of red meat based politics that Republicans have used to great effect over the course of the last 25 30 years I absolutely agree, and that's absolutely what I would do. I don't think that there's any Democrat that has the stomach or the ability <laughs> well, to do it. Yeah, um, but, I'll tell you, but I'll tell you this. I mean, if I were the Democratic candidate and, and I were on that stage uh, and Trump said all of that shit that I was just laying out, I would respond by simply saying, I just want to tell the American people that my response to that is really three words, and these three words would be on the top of my agenda once I enter in the White House, and those three words are lock him up. Oh, there you go. See? And that's – so this is the interesting crossroad here for the Democratic Party because because you have this core inside your – ostensibly inside your half of the political spectrum – who who are dancing on the on they believe dancing on rightly dancing on the grave of a Russiagate obsession and an obsession with Donald Trump almost to the point of which saying it's they're they're almost intimating that a Trump derangement syndrome has taken over the the Democratic Party and I think largely because they think that the Democratic Party is ginning up a multi generational blood feud with Russia that's going to end in some kind of war. I personally don't think that that's what it is. I actually think that Russia almost becomes beside the point halfway through the Russia Gate story, and it's actually really an attempt to go after Donald Trump. And the Russians, and the Russians are the uh, pro- probably the primary uh, propagators of that talking point because that serves their interests very, very well. If there's an entire segment of the political left in the United States that believes that the U.S. establishment uh, is heading towards a nuclear conflagration with Russia, boy, does that help Putin's agenda? Absolutely, and it's and it's so. So they've got that to deal with, but maybe they got maybe it's time to just blow by those 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 restrictions and sensitivities and do exactly what you said and that start to fight fire with fire. Now, the flip side of that is is you know, there are all ways of of interpreting it the, the whole thing about borking, but just it's kind of a case study whether you think it's apocryphal or not, but just this idea of when when judge Bork was borked and it became it became a thing, right? We're going to bork somebody. The idea is that that sort of unleashed sort of the furies. And as the Cold War came to an end and partisanship increased, and it became a tit for tat, you had the. I mean, they there was a there. I don't know if you want to call it a vast right wing conspiracy, but Bill Clinton again was a target rich environment. But there was a concerted effort to go after him, and. In each successive president, this is, I guess, the beauty of 9-11 and the Iraq war for George W. Bush. It bought him four, a four to five year honeymoon where he didn't actually have to deal with criticism under the banner of you know, protecting God, country, apple pie, and Chevrolet from, from the, the evildoers. But we've been in this sort of political thing. And so the question is, do you want to go there? Because I have to tell you, Eric, I watched a lot of debates in 2016 – and two things I saw Democratic candidates hammer over and over again in those debates in a lot of places in in purple and red states and purple and uh, districts and maybe blue leaning districts where it still could be up for grabs. Two things, health care 
and stopping the acrimony in Washington. So we hear this all the time that people want the acrimony to end. But then again, it also seems like the acrimony works because it actually draws as paltry as the ratings are com comparably. They do get ratings over at Fox News, MSNBC and CNN on acrimony ratings that weren't there before Donald Trump entered the political bloodstream in 2015. Agreed. And I think that, again, you don't have a Democratic candidate, at least not yeah. yet, not that I've seen, that can actually inhabit the space that I'm talking about, the space that would lead people in chance of lock him up. You, you see what I'm saying? And this would right. be not because you're actually saying that you want people doing that. It's because you're demonstrating that you are targeting him. That's yeah. the thing, is that the Democrats play this absolutely asinine game over and over and over again where they're constantly pussyfooting around the issues uh, while the Republicans, and Trump especially, but the Republican Party broadly, goes for the throat. They yep, always they go for the throat. And so the question is, is there a Democratic candidate that really would be able to go for the throat? I, I'm i not sure there is one. I, I don't think that Bernie really has the uh, charisma to do that, the stamina to do that. I, I, certainly not Elizabeth Warren or uh, you know any of these other people. Biden is trying to present himself as somebody who could do that sort of thing. But Biden, I have to tell you, I think he's kind of a joke, and I'm not really buying the polling numbers that they're saying about Biden. What's your thought? Yeah, no, get him out on the hustings and see how it goes. You know what I mean? Let him let him do some retail politicking first before we because I think on paper he looks a lot better than he does in practice, most likely, right? And then the fact that he had this gambit with Stacey Abrams, if I could just start my announcement by saying, hey, folks, look, I've got an African-American woman on the ticket uh, before I even get going. And I guess in a weird way to try and deal with the Anita Hill problem, <laughs> I, you know, and the fact that I even asked the question, I think, is a problem for him, because if people are asking that question about your attempt to do that, that means you're already in a political hole. And when is there even a I'm sorry, I just as a sidebar, is there even a precedent for somebody having a running mate before their campaign starts? I don't even I can't even think of one. Yeah, I, I it's I haven't seen it. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to to do that. That doesn't I think there might be a strategic reason to do to do it. But in his case, I think it actually backfired. And it's we're back to this really interesting point that you made. If you watch CNN and particularly MSNBC and Fox News, if you watch it during the day, you're going to see catheter commercials. And why do you see catheter commercials? It's because of the demo that you're talking about. It's it's basically aging baby boomers in their uh, early to mid and even late 60s and into their 70s who were watching these 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 news uh, channels. These don't info forget. Uh, 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 I have to correct you. I also see commercials by uh, selling gold coins from <laughs> gold coins. Yes, that's right. You have hoarders with catheters <laughs> who are watching these shows. It's right. one of my favorite one of my favorite bands, actually, Hoarders with Catheters. <laughs> yeah, didn't weren't they uh, weren't they at Outside Lands last year? Anyway, so I think for the Democratic Party, it makes much more sense to go with a generational shift and a generational shift appeal. I think it makes. I mean, if you if you go if you want to go back to in in history, recent history, 
that generational shift appeal was one of the ways that Bill Clinton beat a sitting incumbent Republican president. That's that that was a that was a part of the selling point. I also think the economy is a wild card here, too. And if the economy, if the numbers continue to show uh, a stagnation and the bond market continues to underperform, then the economy starts to elevate. Then, you know, you might get a different set of a set of, um, of dynamics that can be exploited. But I don't know. I don't see anybody who's there. Beto O'Rourke, the guy with no positions. Or Elizabeth Warren, who is all positions. I mean, it's all policies with her. She's a bit pugilistic, though. I think Elizabeth Warren could actually pull off the pugilism. And Bernie, uh, I don't know. Kamala, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't know where you stand on any of these. But the guy who's getting the most uh, play inside, inside uh, Iowa right now is Buttigieg. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting. Uh, speaking of wild cards, that's an interesting one that probably deserves its own kind of analysis. And I have to admit, I mean, I I, I know enough about him to be able to speak on him, but I, I haven't done any kind of in depth uh, examination of this guy. But I have to say that. Um, the fact that everyone, you know, or not everyone, but many of these uh, uh, mainstream media outlets are now spoon feeding him to me tells me something pretty significant. I think less significant about Buttigieg, I guess Buttigieg is how you pronounce it, um, yeah. less significant about him. I think it says a lot more about Beto O'Rourke, frankly. Uh, if they got to put this guy up, I think it says that O'Rourke is weaker than he's been presented to be uh, because, I mean, how many, you know, semi-young, semi-photogenic white dudes are you going to have in this campaign who are going to take centrist positions? I mean, there's only so much territory like that you can stake out. There's the farther left group of like, you know, Warren and, and, and Sanders. There's the center neoliberal types, like uh, more like a Kamala Harris and whomever. Cory Booker. Uh, Cory Booker, right. But Kamala Harris and Cory Booker have the, you know, to, to use the more cynical interpretation, have the advantage of a black demographic built into their base in addition to a lot of other, um, you know, elements that they can that they can kind of bring together. As far as the Buttigieg thing, though, I got to say that this looks like a fallback plan for Beto O'Rourke not panning out. Well, and look, it's he's if anything, he is running to be a vice presidential candidate. Right. Again, but but again, here's the question, though. Nobody knows who this guy is six months ago. Nobody cares, right? Beto O'Rourke is everywhere, right? He's the man who's going to slay the Ted Cruz monster. He's the record-breaking fundraiser. He's live-streaming his dentist appointments that everyone's interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he's Taking everywhere. He's everywhere. And then he finally, you know, he meets with Obama, for Christ's sake. He finally announces he's running. He swoops into Iowa. And it's like, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen much. It's because he doesn't say much. And that's I mean, I think that's going to be the problem that he's going to face, particularly when you have Elizabeth Warren out there saying, you know, I want to break up big ag. I mean, you want to win in Iowa? 
I want to help the family farms by breaking up big ag and empowering you to, to take back farms from, from big agriculture. Wow. That's saying but something. I'm going like, to take, I'm going to, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your comment there, but I'm going to take a cynical, I'm going to take a cynical view of that. Do you really think, and, and I'm asking genuinely, do you really think that uh, a, a significant proportion uh, let's say let's say a a significant enough proportion of those farmers in Iowa are going to be even willing to listen to someone who's branded as like a communist the way that Warren and or Sanders will in, and are being branded I think it's a I think it's an open question and I think the wild card in all of that uh, calculus is the uh, long-standing Im- or long-term impact of the trade war if the trade war uh, really starts biting harder on those farmers and those band-aids that Trump has kind of given them these little these these little, uh, you know, cash infusions that he's provided them don't really cut the mustard, then I could see some interest in that. But if that doesn't happen, boy, I think that any lefty is going to have a real hard time regardless of the strength of the policy. I don't think so in Iowa, actually, because I think that the the caucus activist core, caucus motivated activist core in Iowa is actually kind of lefty. And lefty in that DFL Minnesota kind of way, right? But you're talking about the primaries. I'm right? talking primaries. Yeah, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, in, in primaries. Okay, I could see. No, that, no, I thought but... we were talking about who was going to get oh, okay, the nomination. Fair. No, yeah. I'm not talking about. I thought we were still doing the horse race for the. Yes, no, the we are. We are. I just, I, I kind of was thinking. I mean, is this somebody who could actually appeal? Because she's presenting these policies, right? Break up big ag. Okay, yes, I can understand how that would 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 play in a democratic primary. But yes. is is are any of these agricultural states even in play in the general election? I'm no, not yeah, so no, no, sure. No, no, no. General election, we're talking about a whole different calculus, and that's the calculus that allows Biden to be at the top of every poll when he's done nothing, and as you say hasn't done anything to prove that he does have anything going for him other than this gambit with Stacey Abrams, because it's a, that's the electability question. And it's about returning the blue wall to its, to its, uh, restoring the blue wall, basically. Right. That's, that's, that's the, the, let's mix our metaphors. That's the brass ring is the blue wall. And, and that's the appeal for, for Biden. It would certainly, I think, work against Buttigieg. Thank you for the Correction, having a a gay man who is married, I mean, in, in a, I hate to say it, but in a general election, that's a tough that's going to be a tough, a tough call, don't you think? I mean, it's the same thing. Any. So the Democrats, I think, have to decide as a as a party through this process, if they want to try and play it safe and go the electability route or they want to gamble, because who knows, maybe. Maybe the country is ready for Buttigieg. Maybe if he has this, because one of his little his little um, edges that he brings to the race is that he is a Bible believing Christian who wants to who is offering a different view of Christianity, which means that he could actually uh, attack. He could at least play on the field with that evangelical core that is that is Trump's most important constituency and at least offer a counter. It's like your lock him up principle, lock him up principle. Go and attack them 
on the playing field where their ideas are as opposed to saying, I'm not even going to engage with you and just write you off. That's, I think that's one of those other issues, right? If you're going to come up with a candidate that's not um, a milquetoast candidate or a market-tested candidate that's designed to be electable, and you're going to actually go with somebody who's presenting ideas, ideas that are going to cause reactions, and some people may like them and some people are not going to like them. But if you go and and make the case for those things out there, it may be that what people are looking for is not as much the 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 policy agenda per se, but the willingness to believe and promote and sell a policy agenda in the face of opposition to it. It's very interesting. I think there's a lot more to discuss about that. The evangelical question is really interesting as that demographic continues to shrink. And I think it's it's political power uh, having reached a zenith probably, well, at, at some point in our not-too-distant history. And I think I, there's I, a correlation between the shrinking population and the vociferousness of their political activity. Yeah, it's a la- it seems like a last gasp kind of kind of move on their part. The the harder, you know, I mean, evangelicals supporting Roy Moore. You know what I mean? That's that's the that's the visual that we're really talking about. Any, <laughs> a, a, anyway, uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, on the other side of the break, we got a lot more to discuss. News Vandal, the News Vandal website, newsvandal.com. Get on that newsletter. I'm speaking to you as if there's a real commercial break, but there isn't. It's just music, and I'll talk to you again in just a few minutes. Kick at your front door How you gonna come With your hands on your head Or on the trigger of your gun When the law break in How you gonna go Shot down on the pavement You can bruise us, but you have to answer too Oh, the guns of Brixton Money feels good, and your life you like it well But surely your time will come, as in heaven
And we're back chatting here with J.P. Satilli. Again, get on the News Vandal newsletter. It comes to your mailbox, to your email every single day, and it is the best newsletter you will find, I promise you. Um, J.P., before before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the evangelicals and the campaign and, and, and which way the Democrats might want to go. And I do want to shift gears in a, in a minute or two uh, to talk about well, I, I kind of want to get your take on the Jesse Smollett story because that is really interesting to me. Um, but before we get to that, um, you said the, an interesting point about the Democrats. Do they want to? Do they want to go for the new demographic? Do they want to shift to a generational shift, or do they want to kind of? play it safe. And in playing it safe, I think you were kind of implying that they would be fighting it out with Republicans in some senses on the battlefield of the Republicans choosing. And that strikes me as tactically horrendous, an absolute utter uh, debacle waiting to happen. And uh, frankly, I I can see the Democrats doing it. (laughs) Well, it depends on what you mean, because I think I think ignoring the question of God and faith and religion is you might as well go for it. And that's Buttigieg's thing, right? Just go for it. I'm going to engage. I I think that's actually not a bad idea because anything that you can do to instigate your opponent and to engage your opponent, I think makes a lot of sense, Uh, particularly engage their strength. I, I just think tactically engage them at their strength and not just at their weakness. I, I would I would I would agree, but I want to pose a uh, slight change in that question. Sure. There is, and studies have shown this, a huge difference between the older evangelicals and the younger, right. or maybe the children of the yes. evangelicals. Even yep. when the children are still believers of the faith, do still attend church and whatever, there does seem to be at least some major differences of view on social issues, in, especially among the younger evangelicals. So in that sense, what you're saying makes sense, right? That somebody like a Buttigieg can thump a Bible, but also be a gay man. That might appeal to some of those younger children of evangelicals. But the question I would then pose as a counterpoint is, irrespective of whether or not you're appealing to those younger evangelicals, are those deep red states where the evangelicals are really strong in play? I would say no, even if you appeal to those demographics and even if you peel off the younger evangelical vote. Okay, so I think this is where we get into what I think is the new political environment. And it's a political environment of all of the innovations, if there are, if you want to call them that, of of Trump's pres- Trump's political presence, the the number one takeaway that I got from 2016 is that it is as important, if not more more important, to demoralize and fracture your opposition's uh, voting base than it is to uh, to excite your own. You should excite your own, and once you get yours excited, that's great, and he was good at that. But what they were really effective at was demoralizing the opposition. This brings us back around to the question of of Russia in the last campaign and all of those issues, which we many of us expect to be have many details buried in the report, and that's also another reason you would think for Donald Trump to not have the report would not want the report to come out because what is one of his number one obsessions? It's the size of his election and the legitimacy of it. So there's that question in there. But I think it's really 
even if you okay so you're just going to write off let's just say that swath from south dakota all the way down to louisiana right that big red sort of heart of the of the country if you just ignore them and you don't put any resources into them i think you're missing an opportunity in some cases to demoralize voters and maybe even pick up a couple congressional races along the way through demoralization and in particular definitely this is the case in purple states we're demoralizing the opposition that's what that's you know it's not really that new of an innovation i think it was used in a different way in the last election in 2016 but it's the same old same old of negative advertising works it's just that it was done in a hyper targeted way with social media by the trump campaign cambridge analytica and brad parscale supposedly kushner was running it you know who was over at Cambridge Analytica? Well, Mike Flynn was on the board of Cambridge Analytica, and and Bannon was over there at the Cambridge Analytica. So, what were they doing with all of that data? They were they were demoralizing the base. Selinda Lake, a day after the election, Democratic pollster for a long time, said in an interview that the turnout models failed, not the polling. The polling was dead on. They actually got the poll result they expected the, by the you know one and two percentage point win. Where, they, where it failed was in the turnout models that, and they expected five million more Democrats to show up. Five million. They were playing on five million more voters. They didn't show. That's a demoralized voting base. And and so to go and play on your opponent's field in, in certain key states, maybe you don't challenge in all red states, but places you certainly want to challenge in Georgia now. You may even want to challenge in Texas, although that could still be fool's gold. But you know what? The demographics are moving very quickly in Texas. And if you can, do, if you can demoralize by hanging burying tires around your opponent's neck, by engaging them in issues that they think that are their strength – that may be an, may be effective. It was certainly effective for Donald Trump in the last election. But Donald Trump, well, let me let me back up. I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I actually agree with a lot of that analysis. But I'm gonna kind of play devil's advocate here and say that in order to to execute what you're talking about. It requires a tremendous amount of resources, and I don't just mean financial resources. I mean resources of time, of on-the-ground campaign work, yeah. grassroots stuff, all you know, all of that door-knocking, all of that kind of stuff. That's what that requires. And the question that I would have is, but is the payoff worth that kind of investment when you consider that just a couple – of Rust Belt states flipping from Trump to a Democrat changes the election completely. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota gave the election yes. to Trump. Yes. Those those states where people like Bernie are really beloved yes. and where people like Hillary are really despised, yes. that's where the election is made. So I get what you're saying about demoralizing people, but the demoralization in 2016 was a demoralization of the Democrats' own making. No doubt. And and in, in 2020, <laughs> yeah. the question is, are they going to make that same mistake? Well, and let's... We don't know yet because we don't know who the candidate is. And based on the field at hand, it seems like a it seems like a possible mistake that is just waiting to be made. But it's it's early days. I, I don't I mean, who is who is who are these people? 
is Hickenlooper. I mean, Hickenlooper does the one thing. He comes out against the New Green Deal, which is a nice buzzword and set of buzzwords inside the Democratic Party. Maybe he's trying to differentiate himself. I don't know. I mean, Hickenlooper, I don't know. I don't know. We've talked about Beto. I think that in a weird way, Kamala has has a shot at the nomination because she hits a lot of those old uh, entrenched Democratic um, buttons. She can she can basically kind of be a new version of that DLC kind of Democrat, right? She can she can pull that in, and because she she's African American, and because she's a woman, because those you know, and she was a prosecutor, she's got this mix of things that makes her maybe look electable at this time. And I think that that's I don't know. I'm back to it again here, Eric. Electability or ideas? Electability or ideas? You would love to have them both be be in the same candidate, but you want to know what? Donald Trump did not have electability. He did not have electability. And as much as we may not think that they're valid ideas, he had ideas. Maybe they're just catchphrases, but they were enough. They were they were formed enough as ideas to be to be effective. And he pushed them. And are he, you ki- are you kidding? Build the wall is like the greatest political idea of my lifetime. Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's utterly insane and 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 fascist in every imaginable but way. Perfect. But as as far as as far as political yeah. quote unquote ideas go, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know me. I like to I modulate my. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to get over my skis here. But that's what I think. He had ideas. He even had electability. He had ideas. And Hillary Clinton had electability. Right. Electability. What were her ideas? Can you can anybody think of any one idea? I'll, I'll go back. I think one of the biggest mistakes she made was early on flip flopping on, on TPP. She should have owned it. What, it's not a matter of whether I agree with her on TPP or not, or I agree with the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership or not. But w- when she flip flopped on that, that just basically said, there she is. She's just doing whatever she can to get elected. Had she been an advocate for free trade and said, that's right, I believe in free trade. I've always believed in free trade. I believed in free trade when I was on the board of Walmart. I believed in free trade when my husband became president and I and he opened up Chinese labor to Walmart. I've always been for free trade. Just own it. You got to own it. And you have to be you have to have some level of unabashedness, I think, in this political environment. I would almost say some some you have to flirt with impunity because I do believe we live in the age of impunity where impunity is what is rewarded. That's that's what people um, uh, gravitate to is your willingness to say this is what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, tough, I'm doing it anyway. And then people go, oh, that person's strong. That person's strong. Going the other direction shows weakness. And that's one thing you cannot show in this political environment right now is weakness. That's why AOC is. She's the best thing the Democratic Party's got. You want to know why? Because she knows how to troll. The tr- her troll on Mike Lee, it was great. That's great. It's hilarious. I'm not like saying that as a supporter of her. I'm saying that as somebody who's a who's watched a lot of trolling. That was a great troll. And I think that's that is going to be required. The oddity, one little oddity here, is that many of the mechanisms you talked about the infrastructure you have to have to demoralize and counterattack. Well, 
Trump didn't really have that infrastructure because he was able to utilize a new infrastructure that was that that could be controlled centrally and didn't require a lot of people out on the hustings, knocking doors, leaving you know flyers uh, in you know in mailboxes. They weaponized social media, and now the the uh, the oddity that I was referring to is that now that's going to be restricted supposedly going into the next election cycle as companies like Facebook are doing everything they can to avoid being called a media company and uh, and coming under the 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 guillotine someday of a major antitrust move yeah I, I I hear that although i'm I'm somewhat skeptical of their ability to actually do it because as they tighten the security protocols, the new tactics will be will, will emerge and those exactly. new tactics will take into account the new protocols. Yep. so I don't really I think that 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 frontier has been opened and it's not closing anytime soon. It's wow right. Yeah. yeah, let's let's uh, in the time we have remaining, I, I want to get your take on the Jesse Smollett oh, story, because this is look, I, it's not because I really want to talk about, you know, the, the, the you know, what happened or anything like that. I, I mean, it's it's complicated. But what I'm really interested in is how this whole thing has played out, because I I it is utterly bizarre to me. I have a hard time coming up with good explanations for what's happened and how this case has essentially been resolved. So I guess I'll just start by asking you, I mean, what is your take on the way that the charges were dropped? I mean, does this strike you as totally out of the out of the realm of normal prosecutorial behavior or is there something I'm missing? Uh, I don't think you're missing anything. I think there are two possibilities. There's some kind of crony thing in the background, and I've this is already generating on the and the right wing press. Uh, I, I, folks, I get up at six in the, four in the morning, and from four to six in the morning, I spend. I go to many many websites, and every day I go to all the conservative websites, so I can see how the things. I go to all the liberal websites too, all the lefty websites, so you can see how stories are generating. There's this um, some people some she's being called a fixer, you know uh, a Michelle's o, Michelle Obama's personal fixer. Her name is Tina Shen, I believe T T C H E N, and apparently she had some role in talking to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor may have been influenced by that to pull, and it's maybe it's a crony baloney kind of thing. That that's a possibility. I mean, it would certainly explain a lot. I think there's another possibility. Jesse Smollett's lawyer, uh, when she came out and talked after the charges were were dropped, she repeatedly talked about how Chicago police has to learn to not try the case in the court of public opinion before even going to court. Said that more than once. And one of the things that I find interesting about the Jesse Smollett case is as is I kind of followed it a little bit, and I was following guys on Twitter who are local reporters in Chicago, and that investigation turned in that wasn't a leak it was a it was a rainbird sprinkler system they were just pouring information out into the public sphere just because i think they've had a grudge against Jesse Smollett because because as Rahm Emanuel said the city got a black eye from this idea that this kind of thing could happen in Chicago blah 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 so i think there is a possibility that the lawyers had enough of a case 
that there were irregularities in the way the evidence was collected and the way Chicago police conducted itself, that they were able to go to the prosecutor and say, we're going to make you and the city look like a fool if you don't drop this. That's the other possibility. So it's either some kind of weird cronyism where a favor was called in to get Jesse uh, off the hook, or they there was enough Chicago police prosecutorial uh, and excuse me, investigatorial uh, malfeasance that they and and a number of regularities that they were going to be able to defeat the case. And and prosecutors hate losing cases. They hate it. And that would be another explanation. Other than that, I got nothing. I don't know what you think. I got nothing other than those two possibilities. Well, my thought was kind of along similar lines, although maybe a bit more uh, nasty, uh, that there may have been an implication, uh, maybe maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, by Jesse Smollett's lawyers and or media people, representatives and so forth, that if you push forward with this, you know, what was it, 16 felony counts, yes. which, is, which is insane, uh, 16 felony counts, if you push forward with this, we're going to put Chicago PD on trial, Bingo. we're going to put this city on trial, and we're going to talk about torture chambers, and we're going to talk about mur- uh, 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 corrupt cops running drug rings out of the projects, we're going to talk about the murder cover-up of Laquan McDonald, we're going to talk about all of these things, and we're going to drag out this trial for months on end, and turn this into a disaster for, for Rahm Emanuel, and for uh, Eddie Johnson, the police chief, and for all of these people so it's along similar lines although maybe even more nasty no than no i think uh, that's that's where i'm going with this because you have a long demonstrable history of of malfeasance investigatory malfeasance on the part of the chicago pd and so if you make this a if you just go with you you go with the race issue and how chicago police has historically treated african-american men in the course of their uh, of their law enforcement activities and investigations, boom, boom. And, it, and with the number of leaks there were and oddities in, in uh, prejudicial leaks where you're, you're actually, you're, you're making it almost impossible as if I was a lawyer, I would say, how is it even possible for my client to get a fair trial in this environment, an environment in which, as you point out, there's a, a systemic, and demonstrable history of racism on the part of the police department. And all of look at all of these leaks. Look at all of these things that had to be backtracked. They said this, and then they had to come out, and they had to correct it and say, no, that's not true. And then they came back and said it again, and they've slandered my client, when, and they're not looking at all the evidence. It's a, it's, it's a giant mess. And who, as a prosecutor, do you want to be a part of that? Now, so the question is this. If that is the case... Does it then become useful for, let's say, Chicago PD or people who want to protect Chicago PD to start laying down red herrings about it being a crony baloney deal by Obama's wife's fixer? So you're saying then that perhaps some of the stories, the conspiratorial stories that are, you know, making the rounds in right wing social media and elsewhere, that those may have been planted by Chicago PD themselves? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it certainly is an effective misdirection if in, ca- if in fact the real issue 
is that Chicago PD made some errors in the investigation, some errors that could be exploited in a way that you're referring. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Right. I think that makes sense. So, 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 also, so it becomes qu- great clickbait. I mean, it's also great clickbait. Absolutely. But there's another weird thing about this that I don't even know if this makes it clearer or complicates it more. What's the deal with him forfeiting the bail money? Well, that, that then, strikes me as very weird. Yeah, I yeah that, that was, you know what that was? I think that was basically to get everybody to sign off. You say he's doing community service. Okay, well, he's done community service. He's paying a fine. No, no, he will pay a fine. He's just going to forfeit the bail. And here is the community service he did. Some of it was with, I think the Rainbow Coalition has something, and he went and gave a couple talks there, and they called that community service. So that's just fig leaf stuff, right? Fig leaf. Just fig leaf. To make it, it – because then what it does is it's – that is your tacit admission of, of responsibility because if you – if you don't exact yes, anything, ex- that's exactly what I think. Right? Exactly right. Yep. So it's it is like a normal deal. And a normal deal, if he would made a normal deal, they would say, well, he's going to get two years probation. He has to do a hundred yards, a hundred hours of community service, and he's going to pay a, a seventeen thousand dollar fine. Then that would be it. So you you use the the whole the absconding of the bail, right? And and his his apparently demonstrable history of of community service as you, as your, your trade-off so that there's a, so he's not, we're not saying he didn't do it. See, we actually exacted a price from him. That's what it is. I think that, I think that's right. Now the, the, this whole story to me really is not all that, not all that interesting in the sense that, I mean, the, 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 the case is interesting, but it's not all that interesting because I don't particularly care about Jesse Smollett or Empire or any of this stuff. What I find most fascinating about this whole story is the media. The, I want to hear a media critique from you because I frankly think you do some of the best media critique there is. I want to hear a media critique from you on how this case played out in the media and in public opinion because this was – Boy, this was like a roller coaster ride. I mean, it really kind of took a lot of twists and turns in ways that uh, most cases that play out in the media don't. So talk to me a little bit about um, how the case played out in the media, how it was talked about and introduced in the discourse of American uh, culture over the last uh, you know couple of months. And what does that tell us about the current media landscape and or social landscape? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, <laughs> everybody grab a beer. I'll give you a couple minutes, get comfortable. I'm going to be here for a while. Um, there are a number of things here. One is, uh, you can see how, how a victim with a story is, uh, has an, is given a level of deference now that I think is perfectly acceptable, particularly in the wake of the me too period era. Right. That's so, I actually think Jesse Smollett took advantage of that and used that to to great effect for himself. Because if you were on the other side, if you were a conservative and you were a ma- uh, you know a MAGA hat wearing person, the way that his story was was swallowed whole and promoted and megaphoned by the media would reinforce in your mind that there is basically a a liberal bias in in the media that is anti-Trump 
and is willing to dim and willing and able to demonize white people at the drop of a hat, particularly MAGA hat wearing white people. And so you, the fact that the media responded to it and took him took it all on face value is are we really going to argue with that? I mean, you're going to if a guy's going to come, somebody's going to come to you and say, look, I've been victimized in, in X, Y and Z way. You're you're going to react to that. And I think the reaction to that was was visceral and understandable. And it got turned around pretty quickly as soon as the thing started to unravel. I mean, the media response to him was no longer sympathetic. I mean, I think the media in a weird way performed not admirably by any stretch of the imagination, but at least performed did not perform abnormally. And really, it's reflective of the overall celebrity culture we find ourselves in where everybody is angling to be a celebrity and and celebrity is celebrity is the final it's the it's the house with a white picket fence two kids and a dog two cars in the garage we can't get that anymore so what do we do we search for celebrity we're using celebrity to stuff in that black hole that has been created by late stage consumer capitalism that can't be filled any other way everybody's pursuing it and and our media reflects it our social media reflects that the news media reflects that so i mean i i don't i don't find myself wringing my hands over the way Jesse Smollett was covered in, in the way I look at, you know, the way I wring my hands over a lot of other things, because it's kind of a sign of the times and sure they bought it at the beginning. But if you don't buy it at the beginning in an, in this kind of environment where we are trying to wrap our heads around the, around the, the admission that for, for centuries, really, for almost all of human history, going back to the Minoan civilizations, when you had you had female-centered, female, uh, you know, matriarchal societies, we have women have been chronically not believed, and the idea of not believing a victim is now become verboten. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. If that victim was playing a hoax, then poking a hole in, this, in that victim's story and then exposing it, which is what happened to Jesse Smollett. I agree with a lot of that, although I think that there's another question here that we really do need to examine, and, and, and that is that, yes, it is a culture of celebrity. Yes, it is a desire to kind of be uh, seen as something more than just successful, but rather a symbol of something larger. Right. But, but I also think that there is um, there is a truth wrapped up in, in, in all of this that I just I, I have to say nobody really wants to talk about. And that is that it almost doesn't even matter whether or not this was a hoax, because for this hoax, there are 10,000 real ones. Yeah. And so and so and so. You know, on the one hand, there was a there was a narrative that immediately emerged of absolute rage towards Smollett for doing this because it discredits all of the real instances of this happening. But there's also another way of looking at that and saying that this actor acted out and played the part that represents thousands of real people and real lives. And so I wonder this sort of this sort of uh, semi-permeable, you know, membrane, if it, as it were, between acting as a victim 
and being a victim because Jesse Smollett is black and he is gay and this is a real issue and it's on the rise. All of the data shows that it's on the rise. I think I saw 1,700% increase in anti-Semitic actions and attacks. I think I saw uh, uh, something like a 1,000% increase in reports of hate crimes. I mean, this is an epidemic around the country and that's not fake news. No, and and those data points were probably drawn from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a whole other can of worms that maybe we should tackle in a, in a month when we figure out what the heck Morris Dees was up to over there and that why that institution is going down flames. But what you're pointing out is very interesting because it gets to the fundamental Rorschach test at the heart of American media right now, politicized media, because for one side of the equation, they're going to see, they're going to see what you just said or the the televisual example that you were referring to of Jesse Smollett and say, I actually don't, I actually think that what he is doing is conditioning us to believe that these things happen as opposed to the other side, which would say your, your point of view, which I think is a very valid point of view that he's actually created a symbol of what's happening in reality all around the country all the time. Right? So for, for people who would be critical of it, they would say they're conditioning us to believe it. They're conditioning us to think that that America is more racist and more homophobic and more sexist and more violent than it really is. On the other hand, the fact that Jesse Smollett was believed is not just because we're in an environment, a post Me Too environment where we're trying to believe victims in ways that we didn't for for uh, for all, basically all of American history, but we actually found it believable because we know it's true, right? It's not true in his specific case, but it's true as a principle in America, as you were pointing out with the statistics. And there we have this divide between two people, two different points of view, one which seems to be rooted in reality and data and one which seems to be rooted in a perception of victimization itself because I saw polling data about six, about what, six or eight weeks ago that uh, a majority of white Americans believe that they are the most racially um, 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 uh, Oppressed. targeted, targeted, I think was the word. I was trying to find the word. I think it was racially targeted group in America. Yes, I that and that is not new. Uh, I even uh, included those statistics on that very subject in uh, my piece from just after the election, from the tw- just after the 2016 election. Donald Trump and the triumph of white identity politics, yeah, yeah, yeah. because that is exactly what it is. And and here's another very interesting, uh, uh, you know, data point that I came across that the more that the uh more um focused and 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 rabid a person is on the issues of immigration and race and racial questions is determined by how white the area they live in is in other words the the communities least impacted by demographic shifts and immigration were the ones most afraid that immigration uh, was destroying the country and that Trump needed to be elected. In, in, in other words, white people who actually have experienced these demographic shifts are less concerned about them. And 
I think that there's something to be said for uh, this this particular moment where these people who want this whole thing to be a hoax so that they can say, oh, racism isn't real, these hate crimes aren't real, I think they believe that because they live in all-white communities where they don't see any of this. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's true. I, I mean, and I think also because there's a larger issue here and I think this gets into why we have this solidified culture, why we have this age, why we're living in an age of impunity, why we've elevated those who, who, who operate with impunity. And I think it's because we also don't generally, as a culture, want to admit that, that there are problems and that there have been problems and that the problems are fundamental. They go back to the founding, that this racism issue is a fundamental issue in American culture, society, and politics, and has been from the from the very beginning. They just don't want to date. Look, we don't want to deal with with what was done to Iraq, and that was just just a little while ago. We don't want to deal with any of these things in our in our collective memory. We want to shove them down the memory hole. And anything that absolves us, I mean, the the offer of absolution in this kind of politics is also incredibly appealing. It's not just about them not experiencing it on the day-to-day basis, but any implication they have of responsibility, even if it's just by proximity to it, they're looking for absolution of it. I think we're all, as a culture, looking for absolution of all these things. We don't want to deal with Eric, Iraq, Iraq. Think of how blithely we as a socio-political uh, system have dealt with the crime of Iraq. Tens of thousands of people killed under a under a lie, an intentional lie, and and we're we we don't we're not we haven't done anything about it. We haven't faced it at all. So we're and then we're going to face this fundamental issue of race in American society. I mean, I think in every every way we see a willing. We're just we're just an ostrich or a, a society of ostriches looking for sand to put our heads in. And any way we can do it, we're willing to do it. And if you if you can sell a a resort of sand for ostriches to put their heads in, like Donald Trump has, you can be very very effective. You are selling you are selling impunity. You are selling absolution, the kind of absolution that he says he just got from the William Barr memo. I mean that is it is a very powerful political aphrodisiac. But isn't that aphrodisiac common to all empires? Really, <laughs> oh yes. Because if you really, I mean, uh, seriously, if you if if you look at it, I mean, what you just described, although you know the the racial component of it perhaps is uniquely American in in some sense, but uh, any empire you look at historically suffers from that same kind of tunnel vision and inability to uh, cope or deal with or reckon with the reality of their own actions and in almost every case invariably and I think probably in this in the case of the United States as well in the not too distant future that empire crumbles because of a lot of that inability to address some of these fundamental issues so I, I, I guess I wonder whether what we're talking about is really uh, uniquely American or whether it's uh, common to all imperialism well it's common to imperialism but I'll just go with a recent example. Look, as you say, the empire is not 
going to last. Every empire ends, and there are many signs that this empire is waning. I mean, I think the geopolitical system is no longer unipolar. That's for darn sure. I mean, that unipolar moment did not last very long, uh, despite the best efforts of of Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. So um, it's going to end. The question is, is it going to end like in a in a sort of a 13 year old boy's temper tantrum or with a lot of recalcitrance and a lot of a lot of bombing from afar and a lot of 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 racial animus and a lot of jingoism and a lot of of xenophobia or are we going to find a mountbatten who can gracefully say oh well there we go yes you've you've shown that we've been wrong all along we're just thank you very much i'm sorry we did all this we're just going to leave now and just sort of bow as you walk backwards out the door the way mountbatten did in india took a lot to get there and, you know, there's a reason why Martin Luther King was taking and taking taking cues in terms of his strategy from from Gandhi, because Gandhi basically was able to force the British to face the hypocrisy of their own imperial system by using British law in particular and and then using the, the, the force of will of nonviolent action. And that actually forced the British to fade away fairly, fairly, not, I want to say gracefully, but without a lot of fanfare and with a, with a tacit admission of their own responsibility on their way out the door. And the question is whether America can gracefully disentangle itself in any way, shape or form from its empire. And that's going to involve a lot of apologies and reparations and a willingness to admit that America has been wrong. And it, whether tacit or explicitly, I would prefer explicitly. It doesn't look like it's going to happen because we've uh, look. Obama was criticized for apologizing because he went to Cambodia and he kind of said, "Well, yeah, I'm a little, you know, America's a little bit sorry for what we did here in Cambodia." Oh my God, we can't have that. Cannot have that. Can't have it. And and Donald Trump is the 13 year old tantrum version of how you deal with the decline of empire, not the Mountbatten version, where you actually start working with the people that you've, who have suffered under your imperialism and find a way to disentangle yourself and, and get out of their way, ultimately. I, right now, that does not look like it's on the horizon at all. And I don't know if I see any of that in any of the crop of Democratic candidates, because the Democratic Party is, is woefully ossified in a sort of dual eye, dual mind, uh, uh, lock brain lock over, uh, it's long tradition of, of har- harboring anti-war sentiments and it's neoliberal interventionist, uh, embrace over the course of the last 20 years. Sure. Look how they tried to crucify Ilhan Omar. Yeah. I mean, they're in there. The, the people are in there. The critics are in there. The anti-war blood is in the system. But, but it is woefully compromised. Bye. And that is why J.P. Satilli will be endorsing Mike Gravel for the 2020 <laughs> hey, you campaign. Hey, you got to hand it to Gravel. Come on. 
I love Mike Gravel. Let me tell you something. I know him on a personal level. I've spoken to him many times. I've chatted with him. I chatted with him last week, actually. Uh, he is an awesome guy. And I interviewed the high school senior who is running his Twitter account and running his campaign. Super smart kid. Really, really impressive. This is no joke what they're doing with that Twitter account. And uh, I mean, I know that um, I know that what Mike would do like he did in 2008 on the debate stage is roast every Democrat, every pro-war, complicit in imperialism Democrat on that stage. And uh, I and as um, David, this, uh, this this young man who's running the campaign, said to me when I interviewed him, he said that he said that uh, Gravel represents a tradition in the Democratic Party that is all but dead. And the question is whether or not something like that can be rekindled. I'm not, I'm certainly not advocating for some kind of entryist strategy into the Democratic Party necessarily, but I do think that given the current landscape, I, I don't, I don't know that it's out of the question. I, I could, I could see a scenario in which young people do come into the Democratic Party with ideas that are closer to Mike Gravel's ideas than to Barack Obama's. Well, I think that the anti-war approach is the great untapped vein in American politics on both exactly. sides. And, on and, and, both and, sides. And, and Tulsi Gabbard is playing that part. Too bad she's in bed with uh, Hindu fascists. Well, I, that's that's it. Tulsi is not a great messenger for this. I mean, I love listening to her talk, and and I do the the, Hind, the Modi Hindu connection, Hindu nationalist connection. You know, there's there's some violence, some religious violence happening inside India towards Christians and Muslims on the part of Hindu nationalists. BJP has stirred up. Anyway, that's a whole nother, these roving gangs of people who kill um, uh, cow herders is, it's been a problem for the last 18 months. Um, it's, it, it's also possible to have that voice come up if Justin Amash, who I think has made a who's who's said a couple more times in the last week. Well, I'm undecided. I'm undecided. I can see Justin Amash, the Republican out of Michigan, just trying to get on the debate stage to to make a couple libertarian statements. And then there's also Bill Weld, who I think is very serious about it, and who I think is aiming to be the Republican Jill Nader. Jesus Christ! You get that? Jill stuff. Yeah, Nader. No, I got it. I, think I got he it. To, he wants to try and Jill Nader Trump in a couple key states, and that's what his position is going to be. And and I, you know, he's libertarian. He's not quite anti-war, really, uh, among the libertarian anti-war activists who I'm very familiar with with that strain, because uh, a lot of them like to read my stuff because I criticize military policy, and um, so. Um, but that just goes to show you that I'm on your show and then I've been on libertarian shows talking about defense policy because that is there and it is cross party. And I don't know. It's remember a couple of years ago when there was that dream ticket of Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich that was being talked about. <laughs> remember that? I, I know. Yeah, uh, like a fever dream. Oh, ticket. it was a fever dream. But it just it looks so good on a on a in a tweet, you know, Paul and Kucinich, you know, the love revolution goes on. But um, that's one thing that is is still true today is that I know that uh, Ben Rhodes calls it the blob. I call it the real deep, deep state. 
not the bogus phony deep state. I'm talking about the Peter Dale Scott described deep state. I'm talking about the, the alliance of big defense, big oil and Wall Street. That's that's really where the that's always been the, the power axis in America. It continues to be the power axis. And you want to know who has been who is who has benefited that power axis as much as anybody in the last half century. Donald Trump, Wall Street, defense industry and oil have all done really well under Donald Trump. And those, that's really, you know, ultimately the vetting process in American politics still comes down to, to that triumvirate. And um, that's why I think Donald Trump made it through. And that's I think about the last election, that triumvirate was not going to lose either way with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. The thing that that well, I'm not going to say that entirely. I think the oil industry was starting to see the possibility of losing. And that's where I think Donald Trump had his strongest push was among the members of the oil industry. I think the, I think Donald Trump is an oil and gas president to the core, which then brings us back around to the other issue in the in the next election, because anti-war is probably not going to get a lot of voice outside of if Mike Ravel getting enough donors to get on the debate stage a couple of times. But the other issue is climate change. And to bring it all the way back around to where we've been, that is that is a wild card in places like Iowa. And I think it's a it's a wild card after Nebraska, because the one thing that I've seen change really, really rapidly over the last six years, in spite of having a climate denial presidency, is that acceptance of climate change is a reality and the belief that it is something dangerous has grown by 15 to 20 points in the last six years. We are now at like 72% or 73% of we were we used to be at like 48. Now we're at 72. And as these natural disasters like the the flooding that just happened wiping out tons of farms as those natural disasters have hit and people have seen the images of wildfires and they've seen the the mega storms and we've had bomb cyclones and it's starting to register with people and that and that's I think the other potentially rich vein that has not been mined in American politics up to this point and may be a wild card in the next election. That's a great point to end on. Uh, really happy that you made that point because I also think that's really critical and some other people that I like and respect have made similar points recently. Well, we uh, we went way long, but I think that that's, I think that's fine. Um, J.P. Satilli, News Vandal, newsvandal.com. Get on there. Get that newsletter. He is... Um, well, he's one of the best, and I'm really happy to be able to. Uh, uh, Eric, call, come on! Go to if you if you go to uh, my Facebook page is wide open. I posted uh, Eric's piece on the new baseball season. Highly recommended. Thanks, JP. Thank you, everyone, for listening as always, and we will chat again real soon. <laughs>